I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturopedic.com. That's naturopedic.com. So welcome back to Parent Talk. And uh, Susan, we're going to try something that we haven't done before, which is enter into the warm climate of controversy. (laughs) And so we're going to take on are the three hottest controversies for infants that often don't matter. I can't wait to hear what they are. To start with, I really want to set the stage, and I do mean stage, because this is very dramatic stuff we're going to be talking about. And I want to set the stage in terms of exactly what I mean by a controversy and exactly what I mean by it not mattering. So we want to be clear that all decisions matter. Choosing how to help your baby cannot matter more. What does not vary much depending on your decision is how your baby will be in each of these three instances. So we do care that you make a good decision that's good for you. In each of these three instances, though, there's a lot of disagreement and conflicting parental advice, and you're probably going to be okay whichever way you go. There are some exceptions in each of these three situations, which we'll talk about, but what we're going to really talk about, try to develop, are situations where you're really free to choose and either decision's okay with the baby. Well, everything is played out in social media now, Arthur, and Mm -hmm. um, the three things that we're going to be talking about, believe me, are heavily and hotly debated on social media. And I think that that's what we really want to address is that sometimes you just have to like not look at your phone (laughs) or, or go on the social media and make a decision that's really best for your family. But the good news, as you said, is with these three decisions, it probably in the long run won't make any difference, even in the short run. One more piece of background is our goal today is really to remove the passion. Just look at the facts and give you some guidance on how to navigate it all. So here's our three hottest controversies that in most instances don't matter. The first thing we're going to talk about is tongue tie cutting. The second is the hot topic of whether you can offer your breast milk by breast or by bottle either. And the third is the issue of whether to circumcise your male infants or not. Do you want to start with the tongue tie? As a pediatrician, I know you have some strong feelings about that. You know, I started practice 38 years ago, Susan, and until, I want to say, four or five years ago, we really didn't see this happening a whole lot. It wasn't really talked about a whole lot. Not many babies in America were getting their tongues cut to improve nursing. Now we know that tongue cutting is being recommended for as many as 20% of all babies born. That's nearly 1 million babies born in America every year that someone would like to have their tongues cut. Now, in a 2019 report that we'll cite later, the number of kids born who got their tongues cut just in the inpatient world, that is babies who were in the hospital for some reason, maybe at the time that they were born or for a problem later on, the chance that you were going to have this procedure where your tongue was cut uh, went up tenfold from 1997 to 2012. Wow. Now, you know, just hearing the word tongue cutting sounds upsetting. We just want to start off by saying there are some babies who do need this done. And when it's done, it's it's not that big a deal. It's, it's tolerated very well. But even if it's tolerated well and it's a minor procedure, why do it if you don't need to have it? And so let's talk about the anatomy so we, we're all on the same page here about what's going on. What is being cut when we talk about tongue cutting? 
Literally go to a mirror and open your mouth and look at the underside of your tongue while saying the first sound in the word law, la, for a while. You will see a flat triangle of tissue that connects your tongue to the bottom of your mouth. So that band of tissue is technically called the frenulum of your tongue. Now, it's a funny thing about newborns, like their fingernails and eyes, a newborn's tongue is always much, much smaller than their mom and dad's. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <No>. Amazing. <laughs> you don't have to go to medical school to know this, but here's a doctor who's going to confirm that for you. Every baby born, with no exceptions, the front part of the frenulum is much closer to the tip of the tongue because the part of the tongue in front of the frenulum hasn't grown yet. So what you're saying is that what, when a parent looks at that and they say, oh, my baby is tongue-tied or whatever the expression is. That's the expression. It's because it looks like this frenulum is, is holding the tongue back because there's only that tiny little tip that's in front of it. Is that what you're saying? So that it looks to like a, a non-medical eye that there's something amiss. Absolutely. In fact, if our frenulum was as close to the tip of our tongue as a newborn's is, we'd probably have a lot of trouble using our tongue. I would imagine have a major impact on talking and swallowing and all sorts of mayhem. But the point is all newborns have very little tongue in front of their frenulum. Well, I think that part of the issue is that if you have a baby, and let's say that one of the main reasons is feeding, because the baby may be spitting up or not seeming to get the good latch, even on the bottle or certainly the breast, is the feeding that makes everyone looking for an answer. So you put your finger on exactly why this is a hot controversy, because on one side of this controversy, there's a very large, passionate group of people who are quite certain that about 5 to 20 percent, that's 1 in 20 to 1 in 5 babies born, the frenulum ties down the tongue and causes feeding to be seriously impaired, especially breastfeeding. And a lot of people have actually had the experience, a lot of parents have had the experience that when the frenulum's cut, nursing improves. So we're not here to say that doesn't happen. It, of course it happens, and we're thrilled when it does. But we're not sure that it's true for one in five of all humans born. When my now six-year-old granddaughter was born, she could latch onto one breast but not the other. So my daughter called in a lactation consultant, and I was there. And the first thing she said is that the father has a gap in his teeth and a dimple. Your baby is going to be the same way. You have to cut the tongue. I'm not quite sure what those things had. In, she had an explanation for it. I wasn't sure what they had in mind. And she was absolutely adamant that this baby would never successfully nurse without having the, the surgery. As it turned out, she made my daughter so distressed that we, we asked her to leave in a very nice way, I'm sure. <laughs> and of course, my daughter went on to very successfully nurse her child with no surgery. And then she took her to a dentist when her teeth were coming in. And one dentist said, oh, you know, she's a little tongue-tied. The next dentist she saw, because there's like two or three people in the office, Oh, you don't need it. We almost made the surgery when she was like two and a half. Then COVID came. And, you know, she's now six. There was no surgery and, and apparently there was no need for it. So I think what you're saying is that if she had had the surgery, guess what? Her life would probably be exactly the same as it is now, right? I think in her instance, yes. And now this is one of these situations. Remember, we said at the beginning, we set the background for this discussion. There are going to be some situations where it does matter. Sometimes the tongue is misshapen and there needs to be a cut, and that's fine. But we do think it's being a little overly wrought right now, and there's I'm not sure one in five have a misshapen tongue. The Cochrane Library does a great job in looking at medical advice and seeing what the evidence for or against it is. And what they found was they couldn't find any substantive impact on the abilities to nurse from cutting or not cutting a tongue. 
in kids who appeared to have tongue tie, it seemed to reduce nipple pain. That's as much evidence as they could conjure up. Now, I don't want to leave this conversation saying that you should never have your tongue cut. So what I'm saying is I believe that in the vast majority of babies, their frenulum is fine and their tongue is fine. That's based on the medical literature and it's based on how babies were before this became such a major issue. But there are going to be, I can't say it enough, there are going to be kids who really do need this. And I think the resolution here, if you do find yourself caught in the middle between these two warring sides, is to ask your doctor, what do they think? And, and here's another tip that I found useful in practice. Look at your newborn. They often, you know, stick their tongue out. They're licking their lips and start sticking and playing with their tongue. And you can see frequently across the day whether the tip crinkles. If the frenulum really is tying down the tongue, the mm-hmm. tip will crinkle. If they can stick their tongue out past the edge of their lip without crinkling, then the frenulum probably isn't an issue. So here's a controversy where there are going to be some infants born that really could benefit from having their frenulums cut, but the controversy is way beyond that small percentage of kids who need that done. How about breast milk that comes when a mother nurses the baby from her body and or puts the breast milk in a bottle and delivers her milk in that way? Yes. So, you know, I want to say in context on this one, there's no there's no anatomy here. So the heat around this controversy is interesting because in both instances, the same milk is being delivered. But what I'm hearing is that mothers who from the hospital have decided they're going to exclusively pump, whether they're going back to work or they want to share the bottle feeding with older children or a husband or other relatives, or they just aren't comfortable with the idea of feeding a baby from the breast. These mothers come out exclusively pumping. And I think they're getting a lot of pushback from the nursing mothers who are saying, you know, you're missing out on the whole bonding thing. I think that's at the core. Another large group of mothers are wonderful mothers who experience nursing as difficult. And despite a lot of effort to make it work, it isn't working. And I, I just want to say a word here that nursing is quite different from person to person. There are movements out there that suggest all women are the same and all women's experience of nursing is the same. And that's just not true. Everyone's experience, I think, is rather unique. Every birth experience is unique. Every birth experience, every child is unique. And so I personally bristle when any movement tries to lump everyone into one way of experiencing life. I absolutely agree with you on your statement that nursing feels different to every single woman. I actually nursed my babies in the 70s and the 80s when in the Midwest, unless you were in a teaching hospital, it was looked down upon. With my first baby, I was discouraged. I was in a suburban hospital where everyone was pretty much put out for giving birth and I had natural childbirth and I wanted to nurse my baby and they were trying to discourage me. The babies did not have rooming in, et cetera, et cetera. Now things are so set up for breastfeeding that I think that a mother feels guilty if she can't nurse the baby because there is a lot of pressure. For me, I was determined to nurse, and maybe just because I'm a very obstinate person, they didn't want me to, so I was determined that I was going to do it. And of course, I was fortunate. I had an easy birth and a baby that knew what she was doing far more than I did at the very beginning. I love nursing. I found it one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. And I'm happy to say that both my daughters did as well. That made me happy for them. But I'm also going to get on record and say 
that I have so much respect for exclusively pumping mothers because that is to me two times or even five times the work because not only do they have to listen to their body and put those pumps on at the beginning, like every two hours, every two to three hours, but then they have to wash pump parts. They have to figure out where they're going to be when they're pumping. They have to label the milk, freeze the milk, mix the milk if they want to book morning and evening. Then they have to prepare the bottles, clean the bottles. I mean, I feel like that's an overwhelming chore. And I applaud them for wanting to give their baby this breast milk. And whether it comes in the bottle or it comes from the breast, it's the same product just being delivered in a different way. I think the bonding issue, when a mother holds a baby close and is giving that baby a bottle and looking into the baby's eyes and the baby is looking into her eyes or the husband's eyes or grandma's eyes, whatever, whoever's giving the bottle, that baby is having a really positive bonding experience. If a mother doesn't get joy from having the baby on her body, but willing to do that pumping, I'm really amazed at the number of women that seem to be out there who are willing to put their bodies through that for a whole year. For me, it was just so much easier just to nurse the baby. And again, to me, it was a wonderfully enjoyable experience, but I have known many, many people. For them, it just wasn't. Doesn't it come down to just like respecting everyone's very, very personal decision? I'm really pleased to say that we believe of the three controversies, this one really doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Either way you do it, it's going to be fine. From the baby's perspective, it doesn't matter at all. I think you put it so well, Susan, the act of feeding your newborn really is an intimate act between a mother and at times a father and their child. And we feel strongly that the world should only intrude in this most powerful space with great unease and caution, and only when the facts overwhelmingly support intruding. The facts here clearly are not overwhelming. They are barely facts. And so we, we want to support families with whatever choice they make in this one. This is truly a non-issue, isn't it? And I want to emphasize, there's no bonding issue here at all. Anyone who claims so is making stuff up. That's not how bonding works for people. And we know that from our own experience, you know. How do you draw close to people? We don't draw close to people because they did one thing or another. It's through a set of patterns of connection. And either way you feed your baby breast milk here has no impact on bonding whatsoever. I completely agree. And I'm delighted to be able to put this in our podcast and make a make a statement out there about a complete and total non-issue. So our last hot topic, whose resolution doesn't matter in most instances, is circumcision. Now, circumcision, there's groups of people for whom there is no controversy. And we're not really talking about situations where there is no controversy here. So for instance, communities where circumcision is part of religion, we're not talking about a pro and con here, then, you know, we're all in favor of circumcision in those situations for any religious tradition. And then the other group for whom there's no controversy performing circumcision are situations where there's a medical anomaly of the penis and a circumcision is required in order to address that or an infection that needs to be treated. So what we're going to be talking about here are people who are in religious communities that do not require circumcision or even recommend it, and for whom there's no medical reason to get one. Do you call it genital mutilation? Because that's the words that people are using out there. So let's talk a little about how this works, because I think there's a lot of confusion about this. I think most people know the body's completely coated with skin. So that's true for the penis as well. What's interesting about the penis is the skin that covers the shaft of the penis extends beyond the tip. And that part that is beyond the tip that's the part called the foreskin. And circumcision is when that is uh, removed. Now, I can tell you, I've been in conversation with parents who feel very strongly about this. 
against it, that is. Most of the passion in this controversy is the group that's against the procedure, as opposed to the tongue cutting, where the passion was on the side of those who want to do the cutting. And so the argument about genital mutilation is, if you're born with a foreskin, why would you remove it? I guess my answer is, I don't know why people want to remove it if they don't have religious obligation to do so or medical reason. But that is a practice that has been pursued in big areas of the world. So we live in one of those areas. In North America, about 64% of males born are circumcised. In Europe, if you're uh, not in a religious community that requires it, it's close to 0%. And so now what's the difference in being a guy in North America and Europe? Not much. There's been absolutely no evidence that anyone feels mutilated or there's been any uh, change in sexual function between the two groups. You mean in the way that they sexually perform or the way that they get satisfaction out of sex? Is that what you're talking about as adults? Yes. Now, that's a radically different situation than actual genital mutilation that we see in women in some societies that try to remove the clitoris. That is not a circumcision. When a clitoris is removed, it's like removing the entire penis. Oh, okay. I get that. Genital mutilation in traditional communities that for some reason feel compelled to remove the clitoris in female babies or even older girls to, I guess, somehow control female sexuality. There's not much foreskin on the clitoris. So they're talking about surgery there. They're removing the clitoris. What I understand is that the female genital mutilation, these girls forget about like the sexual side effects. It even sometimes destroys the way they urinate and can cause all kinds of huge medical problems. And what you're trying to say is that a circumcision in a male is not actually analogous to what happens to a female in some other cultures. Heavens no. So my definition of mutilation is something physically done to the body that permanently impairs the function of that body or how they experience their body. So removal of the clitoris is mutilating. It changes the function of the body and it can impair urination. It can be devastating and it is devastating for millions of women in the world. And we certainly condemn that. But the people who argue against circumcision are actually carrying that banner of genital mutilation. And I'm here to say there is no mutilation in terms of a change in actual function with circumcision. But what you're also saying is that if you're not interested, if you think it's mutilation, don't circumcise your little boy. He'll be fine. For sure. So we talked about sexual function, which doesn't seem to vary between Europe and North America, circumcised and uncircumcised males. But what about the risk of surgery? Because circumcision does impose the risk of bleeding and infection after the surgery and pain during the surgery. So circumcision done by a qualified professional has a very low risk of bleeding and infection, those sorts of complications. The pain is real, but it is short-lived, and boys who are circumcised in the newborn period tolerate it well, as proven by the rapidity of the recovery from any pain or discomfort. So we see boys cry, and then not long after the circumcision, they're not crying. If you wipe their uh, genital area for poop and pee cleanup, they're sore for a day or so during wiping, but not when you're not wiping. And often they recover from that in less than a day. Now, if you don't get circumcised, there is an increased risk of catching a sexually transmitted disease and even developing cancer of the penis, which probably is related to HPV. The HPV virus that causes uh, cervical cancer can also cause cancer of the penis. That risk is reduced with circumcision, 
And we would say if you're not circumcised, you can wear a condom to reduce transmission of the STD. So the answer there is that wearing a condom will reduce the risk of the STD that is jumped up by not circumcising and getting the HPV vaccine sharply reduces the chance of cancer of the penis, which is vanishingly rare to begin with. And really the bottom line is two thirds of our boys are circumcised, a third aren't. How do they turn out? Pretty much the same as far as their penis goes. And that is supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which as a matter of policy states, it really should be up to the parents. You're fine either way. Well, that's the bottom line. Mothers and fathers or whoever's changing a diaper, they learn very quickly how to clean around the penis if the foreskin is still there. That doesn't sound like a very difficult task to learn, right? No. And the main reason, by the way, people get circumcised in America if they're not part of a religious community that recommends it or sees it as necessary is because they want their son to look like the son's dad. So what we're saying is if for whatever reason, if you want your child to look like the son's father, get the circumcision. If you'd rather avoid the pain of the procedure, don't do the circumcision. You really are fine either way. Well, that's really what it comes down to. And I hope that we've given our listeners an idea that these topics don't have to be quite as hot as they seem to be. No, I'm glad I've got an opportunity to share this information with our listeners. You know, as we close out this podcast, this episode, we want to say our hearts go out to all you parents of newborns. I think the world sees you as a target. I think there's lots of adults impassioned about a perceived threat that come to you with passionate argument. And hopefully the practice of taking a step back and seeing that whether an issue is present or not can help all parents enjoy even a bit more tranquility in having a newborn. So congratulations on having your baby, and uh, we look forward to joining you at our next episode. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.